This show discusses sensitive material relating to mental health, which some people may find triggering. If anything is distressing, please reach out for help. All right, we're on it. I wonder what you mean when you use the word I. Use the word I. I. Take a break. We have an aversion to ourselves and to what's happening inside us. Inside us. I've been very interested in this problem for a long, long time. Something settles. Welcome back, you beautiful animals. It's been a minute since I've been podcasting. In fact, it's probably been a year. I've been busy working on all things mental health. And I've just combined two podcasts into one. And I'm doubling down on this one. So if you're new here, welcome. If you're a long-time listener or have come over from another podcast, it is amazing to have you back. I thought who better to bring on as my first guest for the relaunch than my mum. My mum is the most important person in my life, has always been a, a rock to me, and I wouldn't be alive today had it not been for her and the way that she has parented me. So I thought, what has she learnt? parenting a child with mental illness over the course of most of her life. What might other parents glean insight from in her approach to how she took care of me? So what we're going to cover today is the concept of independence versus safety. How do we navigate taking care but empowering autonomy, especially when mental health uh, issues are present in a child? We say we talk about the number one thing she did that helped me during that time when I was when I wasn't doing well. What early warning signs and cues that she wished she saw in me? The number one warning sign she believes is an early indicator of anxiety. The number one game she played with me as a child to help counter my anxious thoughts. Two tips to balancing being firm and being compassionate. How to balance being a friend versus being a parent. Teenage angst, or is it something more serious? How to know the difference? Postnatal depression and her experience with that, possibly twice, she believes. A discussion on whether or not it's good to talk to children about big questions like values and what you believe from an early age. Talking about not wanting to let her down by, by telling her I wasn't okay and what that was like for me, about confessing that I wasn't the perfect child. The benefits of writing a life narrative and sitting down with your parents to talk it through. Uh, to medicate or not to medicate with your child and her experience or opinion on that. Obviously, seek medical advice there and what the end goal of mental health is, in our opinion. So a bit of background on my mum. She grew up in a very working class family and she got married very young when she was in her early 20s, divorced from my dad. My dad was an awesome man, but it didn't work out between them. So at a young age she was a single mum she was a professional horse riding instructor and we didn't have a lot of money at all and in her tenacious way she forged a career in technology uh, via advertising and uh, went into technology sales remarried my stepdad when I think I was about eight or nine from memory Uh, had my little sister when I was 15 
Uh, so there's a 15 year age gap between me and Geordie. And now she is thriving. Um, I'm now 32, She's happily married to my stepdad, uh, living a life they never thought possible. For those that know me, know that I've had a rough time most of my life with mental ill health, first symptomatic at seven or eight years old when I was doing strange behaviors because I didn't know at the time, but I had OCD. And then by my late teens, I developed panic disorder, a depression, and in my 20s, eventually suicidal ideation, and it all came crashing down. Her love has always been like a life raft for me. It has kept me buoyant in times when I would have sunk otherwise. It was incredibly therapeutic to hear my mom's reflection on my mental health journey as I, I'd never really heard it before in, in this full detail. And she'd always known that I'd been struggling, but I would come in and out of opening up to her about that, which is some of what we cover in this narrative. And she found out everything when I read her this very long, like 30,000 word letter, or she might've read it either way, the letter got to her. And uh, that was when I fully opened up um, when I was struggling a lot in my mid twenties that I was not okay. Some of the highlights for me is that she never saw what I was going through as abnormal, even though it was so abnormal. There was just this complete non-judgmental attitude she had toward me. And hearing it as an adult, it is, there's no wonder why I felt so safe with her. And watching back on this episode, it was interesting to hear how casual our chat was. Considering the moments that we refer to were so intense. In fact, listening to it brought up numerous memories of me sitting in the car in so much mental pain and she was there beside me every time. Uh, almost every time I have a bad memory, I, there's an equal memory of her standing by my side. So I hope there's heaps of golden nuggets in here for you. It was an absolute pleasure putting it together and I'm looking forward to being on the journey with you all again and helping you live a healthier and happier life. As always, go slow, go strong, one moment at a time. We're all on the journey together. True or false, I used to run across to Mima and Papa, my grandparents, your parents' house, yes. with a nappy full of poo of a morning. We. We, nappy <laughs> full of we. Hopefully we, not poo, yeah. Yes, um, you would get up and go out of our place and um, half the time I didn't even know that you'd got up. You'd drag something over to stand on to open the front door and off you'd go and the, you and all the dogs would go with you and you'd knock on um, mum and dad's door um, to their bedroom and they'd open the door and all the dogs would go and you'd pile <laughs> and just get into bed. Damn it, I'm cute. Am I not cute? That is... Uh, yeah. that is also pretty smart of me to stand on a yeah. on a thing yeah. and pile in yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, was that what was I like as a kid yeah I think I, well I think that that's a good testament to who you were you were very self-sufficient like um I would before I went to bed I'd leave two wheat bicks in a bowl with some glad wrap on the side of the kitchen and a little jug of milk 
and the sugar bowl and at like probably from two years old you get up and make your own breakfast because and turn the telly on and just do you you were very very independent actually I was thinking about this earlier the difference between both you and your sister whilst you were very independent like you couldn't be told what to do like if you were climbing up a tree or something and I'd be like you're going to hurt yourself you were like I'm going to do it so you were very independent and like to do things yourself but very with very close attachment if that makes sense so it's like it was sort of slightly incongruous so Mm. you were very um, you know, loved your family, like very close to the people that the people that you liked, you were very, very close to, um, but but very independent and very intuitive. Like I remember when um, you know we moved around a lot, mm. and and we would um, I'd just take you in the car and we'd drive around to the different houses that I was looking at, and you just look at the house and say, no, we're not living there. Um, nope, I don't like the feel of that house, like from the outside. So I'd go, okay, and we'd go on to on to the next one. Um, so I think you always had really strong, intuitive um, energy about people and about you know who you you were very strong on who you liked, who you didn't like, um, why you didn't like something, you know. And once you set your mind to it, you couldn't really sway you off it do you know where that came from that intuitiveness you uh probably me and my mum mum's very mum's always had this thing about um that not that she's a medium but definitely that people um spoke to her and and growing up on the property um you know there was definitely spirits there um, and at that point, I was also on my spiritual journey as well early and did a lot of reading of early doors of Deepak and, um, you know, we, mum and I would, um, you know, devour all those sort of books because she was also going through it with me late, later um, for her. And I don't know whether that opens up a side of yourself that you sort of keep closed down, um, but... Yeah, I think all of us are are very intuitive. So uh, we just had to do a little (laughs) cut there because our dog just uh, couldn't help herself but want to be in this story. So welcome back, baby. Uh, This is Lily for all those at home. She's a cavalier (laughs) and she's the rock of the family. Yes, she is. So you had me quite young. You were 23. Mm -hmm. You were going through it, learning about yourself, about the world uh, in a deep exploration stage. Then all of a sudden, this child comes, which was planned. You were married yes. at the time. You wanted to have a child. Uh, divorced two years later. But in the early doors, you were figuring it out. And dad moved away. So it was kind of you and I on the farm, on the property, uh, two kids raising each other. When, what was a time where you were like, this is awesome? And what was a time where you were like, this is really tough. I never thought ever that what I and we were going through wasn't happening for a reason. 
I always, always, always thought that, even if it was a tough time. Um, and I think that comes from my parents because my parents are, and my mum in particular, it's always like, you know, there's a lesson in it, this too shall pass. Like even, you know, if you were going through a naughty stage or something like that, she'd be like, you know, it's only a stage, everything will pass. And so I never thought, you know, even if we didn't have very much money or anything, I I always thought that that I would have money and be successful and I never really worried too much about it. Mm. It doesn't mean to say that there wasn't times that I was like, you know, this isn't a great experience. Mm. But, um, you know, there's I have absolutely no regrets and there's no periods there that, that I think that that was terrible. The thing that was amazing was um, I think very rarely do you get the opportunity to actually have such a close connection with your family and actually basically live together even and we had the best of both worlds because we lived in separate houses um and we were doing something that we loved you know mum and I loved the horses we had the dogs and the chickens Mm. and everything and it was just always funny you know the dogs doing something ridiculous or you know the cat or something um, I think probably the worst time was when I ran over the cat. That wasn't <laughs> that was not good. That, well, that wasn't a good day. Um, but even that, like we just we always laughed so much. Like even that, we we found humor in that, and we use humor as a way to sort of get over things and mask our grief and um, or mask our uncomfortableness um Mm. but there was a lot of love and a lot of laughter in that place and my parents were amazing in supporting me and supporting you at that time those times i remember i used to eat so much spaghetti bolognese (laughs) and baked beans i could do a thousand and one things with mints yes (laughs) because we didn't have a lot and 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 now we do what's the biggest shift in your mindset from being that person who didn't have much to now having a lot? The one thing that I learnt coming out of my divorce was that I would never be dependent on a man um, for or anyone for my future and, um, and it really powered me, um, in particular in the early days, it really powered me and powered the decisions that I made in business because I wanted to make sure that I could give you everything that you wanted and if I wanted something, that I could get it. Mm. Your parents have played a big role in shaping who you are and subsequently how you've parented me. Mm-hmm. What are two big things that you learnt from them and, and subsequently change your behaviour and the way that you parent? Uh, I always said that I would never wooden spoon a child. <laughs> used to drive around and hit me from the front seat. <laughs> I know. I always said, because mum used to chase us around with a wooden spoon, um, my brother was terrible in getting us into trouble. And uh, and I always said, when I grow up, I'll never hit my child with a wooden spoon. And, um, and I think because I was always time poor with you, that's the biggest thing that I look back on, on um, the whole time that you lived with with me and even with us, like as you got older, I was always time poor because um, I think as a parent you you do the best that you can 
and there's a finite number of hours in the day and it's this push-pull of making, you know, you need to be in a big job to make as much money as you can but that takes you away from your child. So you only ever do your parenting 85% of what you want mm. good enough and you only ever do your job 85% good enough as as well. So, you know, I was I was in big jobs and um which took me away from you whereas if if I look at my parents, my mum wasn't in as big a job. Um but the one thing to your question of what they taught me that I have carried through with both of um, both of my kids is the my mum always said the biggest thing that you can give your children is the gift of independence, um, and you were naturally graced with independence. Your sister was not; uh, she was much more of a clingy child, and I think it, it took her a lot longer to find that independence. But definitely independent thinking and um, you know, really us sort of being your, your guardrails, mm. not, um, you know, not hard confines and hard boundaries. How do you strike the balance between letting a child be independent and wanting to protect them, particularly in the context of a child who's going through mental health issues, mine mm. popped up quite early how do you let someone live and explore but also not let them go off the edge? Yeah. Yeah, I remember saying to my mum that she must not have loved me as much as I loved you because she she threw me on a horse at two years old and was quite comfortable doing that. <laughs> and I, I used to watch you ride and I, I, I used to say to her, oh, my God, my heart's in my mouth the whole time that you're on a horse. And um, and with Geordie, it was the same, I think, because you know of the danger. Um, and and ma- I remember when you were climbing, you went through a huge climbing stage. <laughs> and mum said, he naturally wants to climb. Let him climb and let him become a really good climber. And and I think that that's the, the same with kids. You've got to let them go, let them explore, um, but give them the boundaries of that doesn't work with you in particular with I mean when things sort of started to present themselves was more later that there was definitely early signs like that we've spoken about when when I look back I think oh that that was definitely a cue um that I didn't see at the time whether it's you know my youth or lack of experience um at with with mental health issues at that point but um but I think I think for you it was I don't I don't think it was a conscious thing it was just um I never felt that it was abnormal so I for me it wasn't like oh my god he's broken or anything it was just you're going through something at that time we need to double down get you through it and and it ebbed and flowed. It, it wasn't something, you know, it's back to the original thing. It was for a period of time and then it would pass and then it would come back. And I also think that you you weren't fully um, open with it at that point as well. It's so funny that you say, I thought it was normal. And because some of the stuff I was going through was so bizarre, like 
particularly the outward manifestations of OCD, some of the things that I would talk to you about completely irrational when I did open up. And yet maybe you thought it was normal because you loved me so much that there was an unconditional knowing and seeing of the soul that sat behind me and didn't necessarily judge all the outer things. Yeah. It, it, would you agree? Yeah, I think I just, I think because I've also had like weird and random thoughts at times and I also understand how powerful your mind is um, and and probably understood that at an early age as well. You know, my seeing my brother go through some stuff um, also I think not desensitised me but made me realise that, um, you know, not everyone's the same and sometimes you can't control what your mind does and... But, you know, I've had weird and wacky thoughts and and then they go um, and then they might come back again. And, you know, but it, for me, it was never something that was debilitating. Um, Whereas it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. And and even when I was debilitated to the max, did you still see me as normal? Yes, always, always. I never, it was just like, you know, and Mark was the same. It was just that's Mitch and something that's going on and it'll pass and, you know, and all, all we ever thought was how do we best support you? We never, never, it never crossed our mind um, and and maybe wrongly it never crossed our mind or should we actually take you somewhere to get you help? Mm. Um, you know, maybe things would have been different if, if we had have done that but we were sort of like it's okay Mm. I think that there uh, there's a certain one of the biggest assets and gifts you've ever given me is that contagious with calm attitude and maybe because it was less known back then or that you just saw it as an experience you never freaked out really Mm. and uh and you say maybe I should have freaked out more but the fact that you didn't gave me this almost anchoring to come back to myself like I didn't I was already petrified of who I was and I didn't want to live in my own body but I think looking up at you guys and seeing okay I can't be that far gone because you know when the air hostess is freaking out on the airplane and then that's your time (laughs) to freak out exactly you guys were never freaking out no matter how bad it got so that was either a really good act or, um, but whatever it was, yeah. it helped me come back down. Yes. Yeah. When was the first time, do you remember the first time that you knew, even though it was, you wouldn't describe it as abnormal, but what was, what was the first time where you were like, something's going on with Mitch? Mm. That was um, when actually Mark and I saw you looking up to God um, and before you were jumping into the pool with your mates, you'd stop, jump into the pool, or you'd stop on on the ledge above the pool, look up, sort of talk to the sky, and then jump into the pool. And I remember we were watching you guys in the pool to make sure that you didn't drown, like good parents. (laughs) And, uh, you know, um, probably drinking at the same time. (laughs) And, And then both of us sort of looked at each other and and sort of we're like okay let's just keep a watch on this Mm. and then 
I noticed you doing it more and more. And I said to you, why are you doing that? And, and you said, I think you said, because if I don't do that, someone will die. Um, and probably if I wind that back or around that time, I think you were also playing baseball at that time, mm. rep baseball. And probably in hindsight, it was not a great Because it's quite sport, ritualistic. Because it's very ritualistic. Yeah. And I think it actually nearly gave loose to, to some of that stuff for you. For the OCD to yeah, grab onto, yeah. Because the, um, like, and, and if I go back earlier, um, you know, as a young child, like from about two, you spoke very um, early, but you were very prone to ruminating and what ifing what mm. if what if but what if that happens and what if this happens and you'd go down sort of a, a negative path with with that and I think that in hindsight would have been my the earliest one my earliest trigger to say well I'm just going to keep an eye on that so before the very acute behavior of specifically OCD manifested at well I would have been eight yeah, eight or nine. Yeah. Yeah. That there was a moment even, what, five years old where I started really questioning when most kids would... No, like two or three. Two or three. Yeah. I started what ifing, what if. What if, what if, what if, what if. Mm. Like I, I'd say, you know, um, teaching you independence, can you just run in and, you know, grab a thing of milk um, and, you know, maybe three and you'd be like, but what if a truck comes and hits your car and you die, I'm going to come out and you're not going to be there, mm. you know, or, and I'd be like, okay, so what if that happens? Yeah. Uh, so funny that now with a psychology degree, I look back on those things and without any experience or expertise, you've done so many things right. Mm. Not saying that you were perfect, nor, nor did you need to be. <laughs> In my mind, not. you're perfect. But <laughs> the, the, the okay and not challenging that straight away and being like, no, that's wrong or that's not going to happen because. And there's a place for challenging negative thoughts. Mm. But particularly when you have someone that's super anxious, you're at, you, what you actually need to do is increase their resilience to the anxiety, not disprove the anxiety. Yeah. So we used to play that game all the time. Yeah. All right. Worst case scenario. Yeah, worst case scenario. We were always X, Y, Z comes yeah. true. And what? Yeah. Yeah. And so once you take the sting and the potency out of the thing that's driving the entire thought process, instead of trying to combat thought by mm. thought, you just go to the source. Okay. Worst case. Yeah. That loosens the grip of the entire domino. Yeah. And that, that was like from very early. So I'd say, okay, so what if that happens? What if a truck hits the car and I'm killed and you come out with a litre of milk? Mm. What are you going to do? And you'd be like, well, I'll go to the, um, you know, horse shop around the corner because Jill knows me in there and Jill will get Mim to come and pick me up. And I'd be like, yeah, so you'll be fine. But that's not going to happen. So just go and get the milk, yeah. you know. <laughs> and um, and I think we did that a hundred thousand times. Oh, yeah. You know, um, because so many times. Yeah, because that's that's just how how your mind worked. 
but still it never freaked me out I was just like okay and naturally it was this works for you so I'll just keep doing that yeah you know you're, you're parenting the child that you have yeah and yeah. you just and I think that's what all parents do you just try and find that you kids don't come with a handbook so you try and find what that secret source is mm. that works and you know sometimes it doesn't work and then you've got to pivot into something else um mm. And try something else. But I think, you know, whilst I didn't see some of the stuff, like in between that, I think it doesn't take away from the fact that you were potentially going through stuff and just not disclosing that. Mm. Um, Because I know when you you actually disclosed it when you wrote that letter, I was like, I didn't know half of what was going on. Yeah, I think childhood, it, I had no idea what was going on. Then I was like, this is bad. Then we went to the doctor and I always talk in my keynotes about coming out of uh, Hing Daddy's, which is what oh, we call yeah, the doctor, God. Hing Daddy's office. And that's when they were kind of like, Mitch has OCD, anxiety. And I remember you starting to cry. And I think that, um, that for me was the moment where I was like, oh, I've never seen you react like this. Mm you've always been like you know it's normal and of the 99 times since then you you were the same but I think that was probably a moment for you where you're like this is something and I remember you vividly saying it's okay we just got to nip this in the bud yeah but I I then went well there's something to nip in the bud this is bad (laughs) and retreated right back Yeah, yeah yeah and got really like forcefully stopped a lot of the outward compulsions on my own, which is very, very hard to do looking back. We on had it that now. conversation in the car. Yeah. So we went from the doctor and the doctor um, sent us to a psychologist in North Sydney who I think actually did a terrible thing. And I was furious at him because he lulled you into a false sense of security and um and got you talking about all of this stuff and you were like oh my god finally I've found someone that I can talk to that understands me Mm. and then he just looked at me and said he needs to be medicated and I was livid I was absolutely furious and we stood up and I was like we're not going on medication and you know and I was furious at him because he duped you um what was my response to that you were quite happy to take medication. Okay. You were like, yeah, this is cool. And I was like, you don't need medication. And what I didn't want to do was at that point, I think you were 12, you just started high school. And I was like, you know, what I didn't want to do, judging by what he was saying about the medication that he was putting you on, this is many, many years ago yeah, as well. So ago. meds is very, the meds then were very different, was, you know, it would basically slow you down, you may not be able to, you know, do sport at that point. You're playing comp squash, you know, all of this stuff. And I was just like, no. Mm. And it was on the drive home in the car. Um, and I remember we were stopped at a set of traffic lights and we were talking about it of the power of your mind. And, and I was like, you need to pull yourself towards yourself. You need to dig deep and find every single thing in you to stop anything that you can stop at least stop the things that you can control and if you can and if you can't then we'll deal with the stuff that you can't um but 
this is a time to dig super deep. And, um, and I know you just took a deep breath and you put your shoulders back and you were just like, and I'm going to do it. And you've always been like that. And I, I've, I've carried your voice, that sentiment throughout my whole life. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've been in even the grimmest of times when I was hanging on by a thread, that your lioness sentiment of you need to dig your heels in right now and fight hard. Yeah. Uh, and part of the reason I have the energy and tenacity to build businesses and make in my career is because of that. And I think you, what you've been able to strike is this balance throughout the years of like, you know when to be soft with me and to be compassionate and give me a big hug and listen and tell me it's going to be okay. And then you need, you know, when I need to be told get together yeah. i need you to when you're starting to wallow yeah yeah <laughs> and that's a art form and I, I know just being in this space now full time of mental health many parents struggle with knowing how to surf that wave um do you have any tips on when to lean which side um i think the biggest thing for me was as much as in real life we're best friends I'm always your parent and I, and even still, I will sort of pull that card on you. Um, and I've never, I've never been fearful of losing your love or our friendship. And I think that sometimes when someone's going through something, you don't want to push too hard because you're like, I don't want to send them away from me. Mm. Whereas exactly what you were saying, sometimes it's actually they need your strength to anchor to, to pull them out of it. And I've seen you, it's nearly an intuitive thing. I can see you when you start to, it's like you're circling the drain mm. and I'm like, okay, now like, you know, I can love you all the way down to the bottom of the drain. And, um, you know, Mark calls it unpeeling the onion. You've peeled that onion back and back and back and back until when you're at the center it's like you just need someone to give you a hand to pull you back out. And, and that hand might not always look nice or feel nice, but yeah. it's necessary. Because otherwise it just becomes self-destructive. Yeah. Um, and it's like, okay, let's peel it back. Let's look at all of the layers of the onion. And then once you're there, now let's build a plan to get you out. Yes. Um, and, and, yeah, I, I don't know that that's a tip and a trick, but I've never... I've never felt fear of, of losing our friendship or our connection. I've heard other people talk about that, like, you know, I'm fearful that if I say something strong that, um, you know, my son or daughter, I might push them actually over the edge mm. and I don't want to be the person that does that. And I think that you can show strength without anger um, it's never been angry like the no. way, but it's just like, okay. I, I think I can reflect on that. Like the, the difference between or, or why I let that in, because as you say, I know that there's never in my mind been a question that you love me more than anyone. And, um, that you were pretty much my only safe place of refuge most of my life until I found out how to build it within myself a mm. few years ago. But the reason why I 
could let you be f- be f- firm with me without it being a bad thing and it being a good thing is a you did it on the bedrock of compassion first mm. i think a lot of parents go straight to that mode straight to solving straight to fixing straight to firm whatever it is when the child actually has to feel heard and understood first yeah so i think because i got so much non-judgment from you for so long and that contagious calm and the not freaking out that when I did get the firm or the direct or the solve, it was like, okay, you've earned this. Yeah. 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 Um, and also the, the second thing is that I always knew you were doing it. There was so much truth in what you said and I could feel it from a million miles away that you weren't doing this just for an authority or to like, you know, power trip or to say that this is best what you actually did was you're like, you need to reach inside you. Yeah. Not I need you to do X or I'm going to do Y for you. Yeah. It was, you need to do like putting the autonomy back onto me. Yeah. Um, so I guess that plays back into this, another fine balance. Cause it's never all or nothing. It's always a middle ground between letting me be independent and also giving me that safe place to come home mm. to. And I know through the years we would wax, I would wax and wane in my ability to open up to you because during my teenage years, I think I then pulled back away, partly because that's what teenagers do, yep. partly because there were times where I was fine and partly because I didn't want to disappoint you that I was still going through it. Mm. What do you think is the difference between normal teenage angst and something more serious where a child should be opening up to their parents about? Um, so I, I, know, I knew that you were going through some stuff um, and I think normal teenage stuff is you go through stuff. Yeah. Um, I went through stuff when I was a teenager, you know, and I look at your friends and you know, Geordie's friends and Geordie and everyone, like, being a teenager is hard. Um, you know, cusping on, on becoming an adult and and sort of really being fully independent. Um, I think that I would have loved to have known more about what you were going through because I think I could have supported you better um, and it would have been less painful for you to to be going through that on your own and I think that you also closed down because we just had a baby and I think you were like oh mum's got enough going on um and I think I also was going through postnatal depression as well at that time um which I'm sure I went through with with both pregnancies and um yeah I I think in hindsight I would have loved to have of course I had the time and I would have loved to have been more involved in it I think you know if if anyone at any point has like any self-harm suicidal you know inclinations anything like that of course they should reach out to if not their direct parents to someone close that's an adult that can help Mm. I I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's not really the point of this chat but I know that it's only in more recent years where you've looked at back and been like, oh, maybe I had postnatal depression. What did that feel like for you? Uh, I would say it felt like disassociation. 
sort of, and it was probably two years to the day for both pregnancies that I actually felt like like I'd all of a sudden just been dropped back into my body. It's the weirdest feeling, but it, it feels um, like, yeah, like you're standing outside of your body and mm. um, and not very happy, um, wanting to run away a lot. Mm. Like I think I said to Mark Nelly every second day, like I'm just going to Queensland, you know, and Mark would, Mark, you know, he's very calm. He'd be like... Have you ever thought about what's in Queensland? Like, why, <laughs> why Queensland all the time? And I don't know why. I was always like, I'm just going to go somewhere hot on my own. But I, I remember driving and visualising just running the car into, like, a wall. Um, not that I wanted to kill myself, but I would visualise it. Because um, you wanted to escape the suffocation of what a child represented? No. No, it wasn't that at all. Because I love both. The, no, there's no both doubt of them. Um no, it wasn't that. I I definitely felt trapped. Not mm. not with you, uh, with Geordie. I I definitely felt like trapped um, because I think I just started to have a um, a life where I was sort of going out and getting some independence where I didn't have to think. Oh, I've got to get a babysitter and blah blah blah. Um, and then all of a sudden, I've got a, a young child again, and so I I definitely felt trapped. And I think that's why I kept on saying, I'm going to run away mm. um, to actually know that I could, mm. I think, more than anything. And Mark was like, go, it's fine. Like, if you want to go to Queensland for a couple of weeks, just go. You know, yeah. and I was like, I'm not talking about a couple of weeks. I'm talking about talking forever. Talking about <laughs> forever, you know. And, um, yeah, I just – it was just overwhelming the – the that feeling of being trapped and then like and so I took stuff I decided okay I need to do something positive I went back to work um Geordie was very clingy baby and and I think the the biggest thing is you know when you're about to have a child you visualize this utopic beautiful world that you know it's just going to be amazing like I'm going to get pregnant I'm going to look like I just have a basketball Mm. you know under my top and um, I'm going to be thin. Like when the baby comes out, I'm going to be immediately thin. Um, and the baby's like going to be perfect. Like it's never going to cry. It's never going to do all this stuff. And, and, um, and then reality hits and it's nothing like that. You mm. know, I look like a, a very overweight person for the whole time that I was pregnant. Didn't look like I had a beach ball at all. Um, you know, you were a great baby. You slept and, you know, you were, really good you know was easy to look after whereas Geordie was the opposite so I'd visualized you know I'm older I'm going to have this um, and I've got money I'm actually going to be able to do this in a different way and and actually I got the clingiest child known to man like I think that she didn't actually know where where I began and she ended and vice versa and and I found I found that suffocating. Like I'd have to cook with her, at literally attached to me because she wouldn't even stay in the bassinet. Um, she wouldn't go to anyone else, you know. And um, I think that's yeah, nice that in hard. theory, but then when it happens, it's it's a it's a lot more than most mothers and potentially fathers expect. And what I find interesting is, even though I was the chilled child, 
I turned out to be the (laughs) mentally ill adult, whereas my sister was the very, very clingy child, but is the most easygoing adult. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, sometimes you can't always tell someone's disposition uh, later in life. But I do think my what-ifing and my constant rumination, I also think my existentialism, like I used to think from like memory looking back on it the thoughts that i would have around the way that the world is and overthinking everything yeah, yeah. It probably wasn't usual well i think that i fueled that as well because of all the books that i was reading and everything i remember driving you to baseball and so you would have been seven or eight at the time and talking to you about who do you stand like who are you as a person like what do you stand for in life and all of this stuff and and you were just looking at me and I was explaining to you that how important it is to really have a core belief system in who you are as a person like from early and who are you going to be in life like when your friends look at you how are they going to describe you what are you what's going to be your truth and and your moral compass in life um I don't know that most seven-year-olds have to go through that so you know uh, I I did warp your mind a little bit um with the stuff that I was going through because if I was going through anything like questioning myself I was like you should do it as well this would be super cool for you young single (laughs) mum you're like you're along for the ride yeah but I was like oh this would be cool and you loved it like you loved thinking stretching your mind that way and thinking about that but it might have also kick-started the you know your I don't know that I don't know that it's healthy to to do that to a young child because it actually kick-starts your mind in running away into other areas that you know I don't know I mean I, I wouldn't be who I am today had it not been for the importance of values from a young age and I just remember how many times you would talk about leadership you're a leader you're a leader you're a leader to the point where I almost lived into Mm. that Uh, and you you know you're a very strong person I think I got a lot of that strength and also weirdly softness those two things don't have to you know oppose each other yeah Um, two things can be true at once yeah they can and so the, the teenage years happened. I pulled back a little bit. You had another child when I was 15, mm. probably some postnatal depression. So I've probably backed off on how vocal I'm being. Mm. I then get a successful job in corporate at Microsoft, finish my degree, then eventually go over to the States. And I, I do remember, although there would be times of good, I would still, from that eight-year-old boy, be facing the same thing. And it would wax and wane, but by my 20s, the, when it hit, it would hit really hard. Harder, yeah. And I, I was just, my goal was to die without you knowing that I was still struggling because the last person in the world I wanted to let down was you. And then as we know, it, it all got too much. And I started... Can I ask you a question? Yeah. I don't know why you think that it would be letting me down in some way. Like, that's the that's the craziest thing you've ever said um because it's not it it's not letting me down but that's what that was my belief system at the time yeah yeah I wanted you to think that I was fine and happy and healthy and you know some of that was true but there was a lot of not okay and you know it got to a point where 
I was struggling to stay alive and you flew over to the States and I remember I sat you down and I'd written this essay, thousands Mm. of words, and I'm like, hey, I really got to read you this letter. And it was everything that I'd been feeling for like the last 20 years and going through that I hadn't said. And it was a really intense moment, I know, for both of us. Yes. Spent most of the time crying. Yes. (laughs) What, What was it like for you in that moment? Uh, I think I, well, it was very hard. Mm. Um, I think I did a lot of, as I was reading, um, cause it was a lot of pages. I think it took me three hours or something to, to get through. Um, and I, I knew from the minute that I got off the plane that there was something wrong. Um, and you were agitated. You were trying to like, you were maneuvering me to get to that point in the day where it's like, okay, um, you knew where you were going to sit me, get a glass of wine, get the tissue box, you know, the, the whole thing. So, um, and I knew that you were maneuvering up to something. Um, I wasn't, I just wasn't sure what it was. And, um, I think, you know, it's crushing to, to hear that your child feels that way and um and I think the biggest thing that came up for me is what could I have done better um you know how could I have supported you in a better way how could I not have seen some of that stuff um yeah and you know of course you'd take it all away if you could so wasn't wasn't great but it gave me a deeper understanding of you like I can I can remember that letter um so I think it was whilst it was painful it was super helpful to and probably cathartic for you to actually get it out oh yeah yeah, uh, and I'm sure many people are asking, thinking as they're listening to this, what was in that letter, what inspired you to write it, and I, and long story short was that I'd gotten to a point where I was hurting so much that I'd, I had to put my hand up and say I'm not okay, and, and the only person who I knew to do it to was you, and so I just went back through my whole life and tried to make sense of it, mm. and literally typed for days, uh, being like, where were the moments that were seemed to be pivotal what was I thinking at the time what was I feeling Mm. not in order to work it out or to change it but just to make sense of it yeah and feel it so that I could express it I think it also gave um gave us the opportunity to clean up some stuff on the way through as well Mm. because how you wrote down some of your memories of stuff actually wasn't how things happened that's true so it gave us the ability to rewrite some of your memories um in the truth like actually steeped in truth rather than this is this is how you saw it and yeah, in particular story. around the you know divorce and why that happened and um some of the stories that you'd written down um and and written down in your heart written down on paper so it was I actually think it's a really good way of um, of either, even if you didn't show it to someone, like showing it to someone is the full catharticism, I think, but just getting it out and getting it on paper um, makes it real, gets it like off your chest, um, and but also gives the other person the ability to 
to deeply understand, to ask questions, come at at something from a, a more knowledgeable mm. perspective and and rewrite, um, which is, I think, super yeah, important. You're totally right. It, it wasn't just an expression. It was a, an opportunity to write a story down, gives you the opportunity to rewrite your story. Yeah. And there were multiple narratives that I was telling myself and that I'd clicked in yeah. throughout my life. This is the way the world is or who I am or that's how they are. And and then you would play your story back and be like, actually, here's another perspective that yeah. to see that from that was true for me. Yes. And then I was able to let a whole bunch of stuff go. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, there is, I, I actually think it was in that moment where Heart on My Sleeve was first born or at least the seed started because that was me ultimately being like, I'm not okay. I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve yeah. to you. And do and literally doing what you now teach other people to do, which is share your story, be open, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so you were just doing that intuitively, yeah. you know, without even knowing. Well, then six months later after a massive breakdown and then moving home, I remember you saying like, okay, it's time to come home. Yeah. And I quit my job at Microsoft and moved in with you and, started the rebuild process and started the work that I'd been avoiding for forever, like started yeah. therapy and medication and lifestyle changes and more conversations with other people that were important, processing trauma, blah, blah, blah. And uh, eventually from that day, the, the real seed spawned and was born when I told my story and uploaded the video and it went mm. viral and you were a big part of that and you watched me go through that process. Now, that was May, May 17. May 30th, 2017, your birthday. Yeah. I intentionally released it on. And then we have five years down the track. What do you, what have you seen in me that's changed since then? I'd probably say your belief in yourself, like your belief that you're like, you've got this. Um, because, you know, it's, in the last five years, it's not just been all smooth sailing either. Um, but I think, I think up until probably a couple of years ago, your reliance on me was more than it is now. Like you're like, I've got this. Like, I've built my own island. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, you don't need me to help peel back the onion. You can peel back the onion yourself. When you're circling the drain, you can pull yourself out. Mm. Um, and... And I think you you know you've got the tools because you've you've been there, you've done it, not just once. Like uh, you can you know that that it's gonna happen again, but you can keep pulling yourself out and and going on. So I think really seeing that trust and the belief, mm. um, it, it actually shows in you. Like you you're like you're more anchored. Anchored in myself. Yeah. And what do you think has been one or two things, not you've seen in me, that you've watched me do that has assisted in getting myself to a place of pretty good stability and strength? That I've seen you do. Because um, I know the things that I do day yeah. to day, but I'd like to see from an outsider's perspective what you think has been most beneficial for my... Well, I think, I think initially... Um, the you actually going on medication was really good mm. um and and probably in hindsight i wish that we'd 
done that years before. But not at the age of five because you mentioned... No, 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 no. Not as a young child. Why was that different back then and then now? No, but that was... So you were like... So you were just in high school. So you would have been 12 then. Okay. You know, for me um, at that time, I was just like... I didn't think that, as I said before, you know, slowing you down and actually medicating you with the side effects that he said, because um, I don't think the drugs were were actually, you know, where they are now, um, medications and stuff. And um, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't from a stigma or, or anything, but, you know, as a, as a young child, you'd also had like bronchitis and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So you'd had steroids and um, so I wasn't adverse to giving you things. I just am not let's just medicate for the sake yeah. of medication. And it didn't feel right to me um, at the time. But I, I think, you know, had had you actually gone on maybe, I think you were 27 then, maybe more like 23 or something like that, you wouldn't have had the crash. Um, but then you go, you know, back to our absolutely original thing, then you wouldn't have gone through what you've gone through. None of this would be here. Exactly, to help everyone else. That's why, you know, you've, through the pain, there's always some, there's always a reason, um, I I think, out of, out of that. It's sometimes super hard to see when you're going through it, but um, generally you look back and you go, wow, you know, and so I, I think the medication helped to actually just give you a break, not to mask anything or take it away because you know you can still go through bad times when you're medicated it's not a um one size fits all um and it's not a you know it's not a magic pill but yeah I think the that just sort of gave you a little bit of a release to to then start doing the work and and probably when I see you're like really good is when you know when to ease off. Mm. When I see you getting yourself in trouble is when you try and push through that and just smash through when you're like, I'm redlining, I'm, you know, super hot. I'm multitasking off my head. Um, and you can't, you can't do that for a sustained period. I don't think anyone can do that for a sustained period, though, mm. just saying. Um, and But you tend to, because you're like, I want to achieve, uh, you just keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing until your body just goes, okay, I've tried to warn you. But I think you're better at, at seeing those signs, and but you'll still consciously push through them. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's just a, a fire in my belly yeah. that is hard to to say no to but definitely with age one thing i've noticed in myself the last few years has been more calm yeah a lot more grounded and and the ability to be like and a better listener yeah Yeah. much better listener yeah thank god you were a very big talker um yeah (laughs) whereas now you you are getting more sort of and i think that that does come with age though as well you tend to listen more it's so funny because so many people who know me now as mental health dude would say 
oh, you're an awesome listener. You teach listening for a living. But I wasn't always like that. And I think that's yeah. why I can, because I can see so many mistakes that I made in myself. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I, for me, a self-reflection of one of the things that has got me good is also having a purpose. Yes. And like heart on my sleeve saved me in a way, uh, in a lot of ways, because mm. I no longer have to hide. In yep. fact, not only did I not have to hide, I could, I could make my life's goal the pain, the pain that I was hiding from. Yeah. Like I, I could make that the epicenter of everything and make some good from it. Yeah. So that has definitely been one of the key pillars in my, I don't like the word recovery because it means that there's an end point, but. And exercise, I think. Um, yeah. I see, you know, you getting, it's sort of like you've got your routine, you're keeping all the stuff in your kit bag, like top of mind of eating properly and. Hmm staying hydrated, you know, um, yeah, the exercise, so that, you know, the exercise, I think is super important to get you out of your mind and actually into your body and, um, and being more balanced and stuff. So see when you do that, but not being extreme, like you were, like mm. you were like, I need to like, just pile on all this stuff to run away from actually just being with me. But that's probably the biggest thing. You're just, comfortable just being with you whereas before it was like okay I need to just go and like see 20 friends in one day and then I'm going to go for a run and then I might hike up a mountain and I'll come home and cook some spag bowl and then I'll be on the phone like all the time um so just running so that you didn't actually have to stop and be with you and even as a child you were like that like you'd come home you do your homework and then you're like okay I'm going outside I'm like being with all my friends and you always surrounded yourself with lots of people rather mm. than, you know, I'm okay just to sit in my room and read a book or listen to some oh, music. Oh, I'm so like that now. I'm the biggest introvert yeah. in the world. Yeah. yeah. Whereas as a child, you weren't. You were always, I've got to be external. I have to have people over. Like to ground you was you can't have a friend over today. You were just like, whoa, the, like the world is going to end if I'm actually just on my own so funny what a what a shift there's been yeah I, I didn't realize how many shifts there had been in who yeah. i was over the last 10 20 years mm. so as we wrap um what is what's the biggest lesson you've learned parenting a child with mental health issues for a couple of decades um biggest lesson that's so many uh, <laughs> you can have more than one. Um, well, I think I think the biggest thing is is it's not necessarily what I've learned, but it's what I've learned works for you. Um, I think we've got a good code now, a, a good language going together of of when you need me to um, to give you that hand the emotional bitch slap um and pull you back out or when you're like i just need you to listen i'm not a great i just need you to listen because i want to fix you um like i want to take the pain away not fix you as a person but i want to fix the situation so that you're not in pain um which i think most people come from the good place of, of doing that but i think I think we're getting, you know, 
the tools that you've also, outside of what I did intuitively, you've also helped give me some tools to not only um, work with you, but work with other people as well in, um, you know, helping them find a path through that that's going to get them to to their other side so I think I think that's that's probably the biggest thing everyone's an individual you know and what works for you in your tool bag is not the same as what's going to work for everyone else as well Mm. but yeah I you know judging by what you said just love understanding not making someone feel that they're abnormal um that they're heard and understood and um and loving unconditionally i think is is probably the biggest thing i would say from my perspective what you've done well is love me unconditionally and i felt that more than i heard that like i knew that and have always known that uh that's an energetic thing and the second thing would just be that constant calm where when you can't come home to yourself when you can't find refuge in your own stability I borrowed it from you for a long time yeah and so thank you for that you know that I wouldn't be here today without you uh literally I wouldn't be born but um (laughs) I wouldn't still be alive had it not been for you and not just a mum you Gina Willard mum has saved my life on millions of occasions and you are my best friend and will be till the day I die even though you will always also be my mother first (laughs) and my final question would be um uh, a tough reality that I have to face is one day you're not going to be here Uh, there is literally no greater fear I have left than that what would you put on a billboard to tell me that I would drive past every day, what would you want that billboard to say when you're gone? God, I don't, I, I'd need to think about that for the next three days. It's such a, that's such a huge question. Um, what would you want your, like, if I was driving past a billboard every day and you got to leave some words there for me to remind me of something, what would it say? You're enough. Good. I love you. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Emotions have a natural tendency to dissipate unless they get uh, reinforced. And so if there's more thoughts, more stories, more intentions coming along. So the act of how am I leaving it alone is an act of not adding more stories, adding fuel to it. So it might not go away in two minutes, but then it begins to relax and dissipate. And so rather than being the person who has to fix it, we become the person who makes space for the heart, the mind, to relax and settle away itself.